Hi, I'm Dubba. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, let me see if I can bring you up to speed real quick. This is part two of a two-parter, but this is the internet, so you just feel free to consume whatever media you want in whichever order you choose, and that's still all absolutely fine. But for context, Dan Hill is the Director of Strategic Design at Vinova, Sweden's Government Innovation Authority. Before that, Head of Interactive Technology and Design at the BBC, Director of Web and Broadcast at Monocle, CEO of Fabrica, a professor at RMIT University, design advocate for the Mayor of London, executive director of Future Cities Catapult, author of a book about strategic design, a spot of designing websites for super famous bands, and a prolific track record of long-form blogging and serious international thought leadership on the topics of innovation, culture, creativity, and design. He was key to introducing podcasts to the BBC, he invents entirely new kinds of cities, and if you're ever putting together one of those all-time dream dinner guest lists, Make room for Dan at the table. He's one of the more fascinating people you're likely to meet on a whole range of topics. So this week we're going to go with part two of my interview with Dan and we kick off with his history of the future of digital music, the cultural and sociological context of musical experience, the designer's search for identity at the birth of online interaction, the idea of speculative design for cities, and how the future is not something that happens to you, it's something that you make, and also how creative cultural production needs to be right at the centre of that process. Now, Dan's intensely interested in space, as in the space around us rather than outer space in particular, though presumably also, the environment we inhabit, and sound, and particularly the question of why don't we think about sound enough in that context. This has become central to his understanding of the city, how we can design places, and also, to a large extent, the health choices we make around mobility. So it should be pretty clear why I'm interested in what someone like Dan has to say about all this. But if you want to know why we're so focused on the relationship between sound and the city right at this moment at MTF, you're going to hear something about the Industry Commons Labs we're going to be running in Mannheim in April this year. See, the ICE Labs in Mannheim will focus on urban and industrial sound design with a particular emphasis on sound in public space. The ultimate goal being to bring together the realms of technology, music, design, art and culture, blockchain, architecture, urban planning, mobility, life sciences and industry. And Mannheim is the perfect place to do that with a brilliant startup ecosystem that's going to help support the projects that emerge out of that five-day deep dive labs experience. More on that pretty much everywhere you hear about MTF, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, the newsletter, the blog, and right here on the podcast. But to introduce some of those concepts and really contextualize them, let's hear from the person who spends large parts of his career thinking deeply about cities of sound and the sound of cities. Music fan and Vanova's director of strategic design, Dan Hill. Enjoy. Um, I want to pull up uh, this article you wrote in 2005, uh, which is essentially, you know, given where we are, this, you know, a sort of musings on the future of music. Yeah. Um, we're 15 years down the line. Did the future of music turn out the way you thought it might? <laughs> yes and no. Um, there were things that we were dealing with there, again, because we'd done, this is when I was writing at the BBC, actually, and I'd just given a talk at the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki, funnily enough. Mm. I was invited there uh, via the British Council, and the Sibelius Academy is very kind of classical music, sort of, you know, it's proper, like, high culture territory, which is great. 
and um, it was delightful to go there, uh, having not seen much like that in Britain. <laughs> so, but what I talked about then was things that I knew that they couldn't catch me on, because <laughs> I've not that much to add around classical music necessarily, but um, but was around the context of music experience. And that, as an interaction designer, was very much my work. It was, you know, the, the early, the, the first iPod, and uh, previous to that, the Rovio MP3 player, and previous to that, some semblance of playlists and, and you know, MP3s and real audio streaming and all of that stuff that we were wrestling with back then. And then people making playlists themselves, and as you said, making their own music, and, mm. you know, what then became things that you know a lot more about, like Bandcamp, you know, you could sort of see, like, almost like the urge to do that in those days. Mm. And um, and yet the music industry was not really reoriented fully around that at all. You could see that that was going to be a huge issue. And I knew that from working with Virgin and EMI for a long time at that point. And then the BBC, again, I was in the middle of all of the battles there about this is the death of or this is the future of. Yeah. By the way, it's full on. You know? <laughs> um, and then uh, just uh, then there's doing this research, and really for me, understanding again this sort of slightly more user-centered or sociological approach. I remember literally drawing cartoon strips of the time to get across to people how music experience might play out, whereby someone wakes up in the morning and starts listening to something in their bedroom, and as they walk into the kitchen, the same track is playing but on a totally different device, continuously in the house. I had no idea how that was going to happen because it was before Zigbee and things like that. Mm. And then they would walk outside, and then I was doing it based partly on my Manchester experience, I remember drawing this guy in a hoodie walking past cemetery in Salford and then something pinging in his ear, theoretically, saying uh, the Smiths cover for The Queen is Dead was photographed right where you're standing right now. You know, mm -hmm. would you like to listen to The Queen is Dead? And just sort of playing those themes out, again, understanding that this is maybe where things are going. Um, and now all of those things, as you know, are more or less technically possible, but still they don't quite exist like that. So this is always the danger with that kind of prediction. You can predict the easy stuff there, but then technically it's incredibly hard, it turns out. And then sometimes things are just a really bad idea anyway. So <laughs> do you really want to be walking along listening to what could be the most meaningful music that you've thought about? And then someone pinging in a year and said, oh, did you know the Smiths cover Queen is Dead was shot right here? It's like, yeah. no, I don't want that right now. So we weren't really, because they didn't exist, we weren't really capable of thinking through things with that level of detail. But we knew that exercising these muscles of speculating about the future would be massively useful. So that piece is full of those speculations. It's looking at really crunchy stuff like, why the hell does the iPod shuffle not let you copy a track onto it when the track name is longer than 12 characters? There's no technical real reason for that, right? Yeah. It's just that someone hasn't thought through. They've thought all tracks are... Let's say the longest track name they can think of would be, I don't know, Please Please Me by the Beatles, because that's what's on their thing when they're writing that code. Yep. And it's like, that is just lazy. Mm. Here's a Sufjan Stevens track name, which is 172 <laughs> characters long. Well, some Palisades. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. right? So, and you're saying that you can't listen to that track on your iPod shuffle. For what reason? You know, so, yeah. so I was pointing to like these absurd things, which frankly would take two lines of code to fix, and they were fixed within six months of me writing the piece. Right. And then much, I think, maybe more interesting stuff was like flipping over a vinyl record in my hand and looking at the amount of what we might call metadata on that. Hmm. And if it's something from the late 50s, like I was a 
jazz fan and um, alongside many other things. But um, and he, I had I happened to have, I think it was probably a Love Supreme or something like that. And you're just looking at, okay, like that's got all of the technical stuff, like who played what, all the engineers' names, producer names, where it was recorded, mm-hmm. what date. And then there's like an essay from someone that yep. they've written there whilst listening to, you know, some weird like late 60s. I actually wrote an article about how um, liner notes on jazz records in the 50s were the precursor to the internet because that was my hyperlink to yeah, this person played saxophone. That was really great. What else can I find totally, by that person? Totally. And really, really diverse, weird set of writing as well. There's some really like, you know, spaced out beat poet stuff Absolutely. through to very technical things. So, yeah, super interesting. And then, of course, the artwork. A certain scale of the thing, the physicality of it, you know. So I was looking at all of that stuff. Your interaction with it as a physical object, mm-hmm. which still played out. That played out way through my career, and still does. The relationship between digital and physical, and your interaction with it. So mm-hmm. when it became IoT and cities, all of my early thinking was based on stuff like vinyl records and right. you know, iPods, and the relationship between those two. When much later on, it became about how am I going to call an autonomous shuttle from this building in Melbourne, you know. Yeah. So. And then I was looking at, at the time, uh, iTunes <laughs> as a counterpoint and the, and the paucity of metadata you could bang into that thing. Yeah. Despite it being basically a spreadsheet. Yeah, but the spreadsheet where the fields had been delimited by an Apple engineer. Mm-hmm. So you, you could, yes, there was a notes field and you could write down Wayne Shorter played sax, but no one did. No. Um, and certainly they didn't arrive with that. No, it wasn't their intent. And so, so I was... Writing about that, and I still, I still find that fascinating, looking at Spotify now, say, and you can see kind of chunks of metadata coming and going as they iterate the platform, and yeah. uh, a video-like elements being introduced into the music experience, even when you're listening on your phone and it might be in the pocket, you know, sort of, how's that working and why? And, but, um, is that glanceable? I noticed with the, the Billie Eilish album, there's a you know animated exactly, cover, exactly. which is glanceable video. Same with John Hopkins yeah. and the new uh, Solange stuff. You know, there's like these little mini loops playing. Which uh, in that piece from 2005, you can see me trying to get at that. There was something mm-hmm. where I also sketched out why isn't there like a little projector for your room, like a mini iPod projector? I wrote a little story and I, I mocked it up in Photoshop, mm-hmm. where you just plug it into the iPod and it would say. It would just project onto the wall behind you. You know, you could project it, let's say, two meters square, even yep. Beyonce, crazy on love. You know, so you can see from the other side of the room because you're plugging into your hi-fi. Yep. Why would you have to walk over? Yeah. You know, and with the vinyl record, you could have the record on the record deck playing over there and have hold the thing while sitting on your couch, exactly. seven feet away. So. A lot of that stuff still hasn't been figured out, I think, or is being toyed with or experimented mm-hmm. upon. And um, so the stuff in that piece that is. Digging way back into the history of um, vinyl transistor radios, um, what became ghetto blasters in the 80s, like, uh, you know, the, the culture around um, music production through to music experience and how do you sort of take the themes and thinking behind it as a cultural thing and then drop it into what's basically a bit of interaction design or technology. Mm. And some of that I got wildly wrong because it was just, like I said, I got obsessed about the Sufjan Stevens title, <laughs> track length, and again, fixed within six months. But other stuff was much more exploratory, and I think it's still interesting to me. Mm. How, do you, how do you handle visuals and music simultaneously with a phone? Well, how, do you, how do you convey, as you said, all of that metadata is not quite the right word around it, but the halo of information around what's basically a bit of audio. Mm. How do, you deal, how do you enrich people's experience? And, and to be fair, that's where a lot of the sort of cultural meaning is situated. Yeah, completely. Exactly. And how do you know that 
new order is interesting in a way that some other band from Manchester at the time wasn't. Mm. And some of that is, this is a long debate on music, of course, it's like, does it have its own intrinsic qualities mm. as a piece of music? Like literally, as a, do you have to be a musician to understand why John Coltrane is a good saxophone player or not? Right. And David yeah. Bowie is a bad saxophone player. You know, they're, like, they're yeah. both saxophone players, right? In their own way. Yeah. <laughs> and. And this idea of um, you know, the, the phrase that I always took issue was with uh, was uh, the music itself. Yeah. People would talk about the music itself, and what do you mean by that? Exactly. So, like, so as a, as a non-musician, and again, you know, and, and I was sort of a musician, but never in a meaningful way at all. So, understanding the difference between let's just talk about John Coltrane, Kenny G, and David Bowie—they right. all play the saxophone. Right. For me, John Coltrane was interesting and clearly like a genius. The others yeah. aren't, right? But, but how do I reach that conclusion? Because it's not a question of examining the spectrum of the wave file, mm. really. It's, no, no, for sure. It's other stuff. And that other stuff means, oh, maybe I have to read a bit about Coltrane and then understand a bit about what happened in jazz before and after. And then what was going on with him. And then maybe that's to do with then free jazz and lots that. And then Black Power and then Detroit. And then, you know, it's sort of incredibly rich. And then you look at Kenny G. Mm. Not a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> and then Bowie, massively interesting, but not because yeah. of saxophone. Yeah, I, I, used to, <laughs> I used to divide that up in, in uh, being articulate and having something to say are not the same thing. Some people are articulate with nothing to say. Some people have lots to say and aren't articulate. Absolutely. And some people have both. Absolutely. And you can be, you know, you could, you could argue Kenny G is technically a better saxophone player in many respects. Than yeah. Certainly David Bowie, but yeah. probably not Coltrane. But. Um, that, there are, but, I mean, Miles Davis is a really good example. There are lots of more technically proficient exactly, trumpet players. Exactly. Uh, and that's why when I, when I said, you know, New Order of Blue Monday or something, why is that interesting? It's not necessarily because of its intrinsic musical content. It's a very simple piece of music. But the context of it is massive. You know, massive, massive, massive. And that is what I was, again, maybe it's my weird, like, sociological, cultural, mm. more design-led background, unpacking all of that stuff. Here's a really interesting thing for me is that you took the time and the energy to unpack all that stuff and what was essentially a piece of long-form journalism. Mm. Um, did you think of yourself as a writer because you did go on to put out a book? Mm. I write a lot, and, uh, but it's always, I never know, I never know. I, you know, when someone says you're a writer, they go, no, not, not really, I'm a designer. And then, uh, whatever the hell I am now. But I've, I've written a lot. I continue to write a lot. But books, journals, um, and then stuff on the blog. And at that point, I had been writing, I suppose, again, because I'd written after my, my master's degree and all the way through, there was a lot of writing there. But um, I started writing, I suppose, in the 99, 2000, uh, because when blogging became a thing, in order to understand what the hell I was doing. So it was like a self-reflective mechanism, as it was often with blogging in the early days. Mm -hmm. um, and or a way of pointing at the world and finding things interesting. And there must be enough ego in me somewhere to say that I'm going to put what I think down about this Japanese avant-garde architecture exhibition I just went to, mm -hmm. even though when there were only 200 people on the end of it. And part of that was building a community at the time as well, as you probably remember. Yeah. I can find people like me that are in Auckland that are interested in the same kind of stuff. That's interesting. Sure. But I have to write something for him or her to mm -hmm. respond to me and then... So it was a bit of that as well. And, and, and I was an, an interaction designer, I remember, in the web when there was a ton of basically existential debates about what is this? Is, what, is, design, is interaction design like industrial design or is it like HCI? You know, that was constant search for identity, which frankly was incredibly dull. But mm. you know, we were sort of breathing life into a new discipline. And part of that was through writing. 
And so that point of the, the 2005 piece was really beginning to move gears into another mode where it was, I think I now have something to say about this based on five, ten years worth of work in music and internet. And uh, people are now inviting me to come and speak at conferences about this. And um, also the work we were doing at the BBC was clearly beginning to transform the way that that thing works and therefore the industry worked or the culture worked. Mm -hmm. You could see that happening. So I was starting to realize the writing had some responsibility to it as well. So it was also though, a way of kind of still very much sharing with the community of practice. I remember writing about the MP3 thing with um, In Our Time, the podcast. I remember writing as well, which got me into hot water, about Radio 3. We dropped BBC recording of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in MP3s onto the internet mm. directly for free download <laughs> with no real... I mean, we had some conversation with MCPES, the Rights Collection Agency, and PRS, the equivalent, yeah. and the record label was... And it was a BBC orchestra, and the Ninth Symphony is in the public domain because mm -hmm. it's 200 years old or whatever. Still, it caused huge problems. You had the record industry basically phoning BBC 3, Radio 3 the next morning saying, what are you doing? You're like, you've just made the Ninth Symphony available for free online. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and and we had, it's not our recording of it, now we can't sell our recording of it. That's what they were thinking. And we would be saying, of course you can. Like, you know, it's the, the, this is a kind of, this is very much, a, we are stimulating people's interest in the Ninth Symphony. And if you have mm -hmm. a fantastic recording of that, it's going to be worth way more than, in this case, actually the BBC Philharmonic's recording of it, good as it is. So, and people don't, you know, they're not trying to find the cheapest available Ninth Symphony. <laughs> That's not really what they're motivated by, really. Sure. If you're into the Ninth Symphony, yeah. you know, you might actually even go the other way and say, I want the best version of it. Sure. So, anyway. And, and Ninth Symphony, presumably, a gateway drug to other symphonic Totally, recordings. which we, of course, the BBC at the time, was very much all about... We've never used gateway drugs, obviously. That's not in the BBC Charter. No. But educate, inform, entertain. Mm. Absolutely. We are leading you into that stuff. So, And we had endless amount of means for doing that. Speaking of drugs, <laughs> uh, you had this concept in, in one of your posts about slow-release culture drugs. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Because I thought that was a really interesting uh, idea. Well, in, in a way... Uh, metaphorically. Yeah, exactly. It goes yeah. back to that. It was using, like, even in a way, my um, iPod projector Photoshop mock-up. Mm -hmm. This became what became years later was known as speculative design or design futures and uh, ended up doing a lot of that, mainly around cities again in the sort of mid-2000s through to 2010s or whatever. Arab and Future Cities, Casper and others, where we would be asked by people like clients, heads of cities, heads of Google or whatever, so tell us, tell us what's going to happen. You know, tell us what's going to happen with technology in cities and stuff. You know, people are going to get autonomous shuttles. Are they going to have their parcels delivered by drones? Are they, are they going to talk to each other ever again? Is it, you know, what's Amazon Alexa going to do to communities? I don't know. <laughs> Depends what you do, right? So, so we started sketching out. So here's two or three kind of um, variations on that. Here's a mock-up of someone riding a bike using an augmented reality helmet. So they're doing kind of this sort of wayfinding going on, but it's overlaid onto the city. And really, we're not saying that that's a product that you need to make right now because it's a bloody expensive bike helmet. But maybe there's something you want to make, which is a lo-fi device that could sit on the handlebars that would guide people through a city in a way that a cyclist navigates. And we had that sort of research for that. But we would mock that up because I can describe that to you now. And you'll, you'll nod because you get what I'm saying. But mm. as many people elsewhere do not. They say, what are you on about? Mm. Well, what? So we had to design these things as bits of culture, really, like make a short film. Or sometimes, quite often, I've written a short story mm. to describe, here's Melbourne, 
or a bit of Melbourne transformed in 10, 15 years' time. I'm not saying this is a prediction at all. I'm not uh, William Gibson anywhere near it, but we can use the same tropes there to say it could be like this, or it could be like this. So a provocation that takes people in a particular direction. Exactly, and I do it, but I do it as a, you know, more or less a a proper story. So Mm. not necessarily with plot lines, but certainly with characters. And um, so it was using culture. That's what I mean by using a, you know, culture. And the slow release thing is kind of it, because we're not, what we're then doing is saying, well, to make that happen or to, or to think about that or to make some variation on that, or if you didn't like it, to make the opposite of that happen. Now we're in a slow release mode because now we need to change the organization, we right. need to change the law, we might need to do this and yeah. so on. So you're kind of you're dropping these things out there and you know that it's not going to happen like that. Even though, as with my Cemetery Gates example, you can absolutely imagine that thing. And you can more or less build it, but to make it work properly, that takes a long time, and you only figure out if it's the right thing to do after much prototyping and so on. Mm. So um, it, was, it was really a case of how do we use a cultural artifact like that in order to stimulate all of the actually relatively slow patterns of activity that might make that happen in a good way. Right. So that's what I mean by this kind of slow release idea. You're dropping it into a pond and it will slowly, again, ripple its oh, way through yeah. that, that thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it just occurred to me, and it occurred to me while you were talking, uh, is that I haven't seen the word futurist mm. applied to. Do you have the same kind of fraught relationship with that term totally. that I do? No, it's been applied many times, and I, you know, I throw it off like a like an unwelcome guest immediately because it's um, yes, it has been applied to me frequently, and I and again immediately I say I'm not, I'm not. I you know I refuse to. Imagine that you can predict the future in any meaningful way. As a designer, my work is all about the future by definition. Yeah. You know, I'm making something for you that doesn't exist yet. Yeah. Therefore, you're going to be using it next week or in two years. Yeah. It's about the future yeah. or in 20 years if it's a city, right? Um, but it isn't a prediction. It's, or it's rather the Alan Kay or variation on that. The best way to predict the future yeah, is to, to design it. Yeah. yeah, to invent it. And then... Uh, Therefore, what I'm trying to get across to people is this sense of agency. Mm. It depends what you do. And particularly now my work is in government, and I'm often working with city governments and others, when they say to us, you know, is um, uh, are autonomous vehicles going to change the way that people move around? Well, it depends what you do. If you make it more likely yeah. for that, then it is more likely to happen, and therefore it probably will, or it could, it could do it. You're in charge because you're actually the Department of Transport for the city. So right. you have a lot of agency there. But it's funny how they don't really consider that. They're sort of asking you to give them the answer and then they know what to regulate around. And I'm mm. trying to go the other way and say, no, let's sit down. Uh, we can quickly sketch out a few scenarios here and then we can talk about the value they might generate and then you can then have a pop at the one that you think is the most preferable. And yeah. that's That does sound a lot more sensible, I have to say. <laughs> I, I almost got into a fist fight with Gerd Leonard once uh, because of the number of times he just kept saying, in the future we will all. And, and yeah. I just had to say, in the future we won't all anything. We've never no. all... Exactly. You know, so, yeah. Exactly. You know, we haven't all ended up driving a car, but we've rebuilt the city around that. And, it, and, it's, and that's the danger of it. That again goes back to the Cedric Price thing. It's yeah. like you can't make that statement because the impact of that is, in the US most obviously, throwing away perfectly good tram networks in Los Angeles, the yeah. biggest tram network in the world mm. <laughs> in the late 50s, and rebuilding then freeways right through the middle of communities, you know, mm. literally displacing people from their homes. Because actually it turns out 
uh, or in the future will be a minority of people who might end up driving on that thing. Yeah. And that was the mistake of saying we will all do this. We yeah. cannot do that. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I'm, I have a fraught relationship with the future in that sense because it's I'm often asked and um, say, no, no, we need, to do, we need to do the hard yards on what do you want it to be? Yeah, you can't shake the responsibility on No, that exactly. And actually often, this is the funny thing about politics and policy, people kind of employ you for that reason. Yeah. You know, it's sort of your job to figure out how the What's going to happen yeah, to us because of the future. Yeah. Exactly. You're representative democracy, at least. You're supposed to be figuring that out with people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sure. But um, it's not, an, it's not a, like there's an a priori fact that I can throw at you, which yeah. is, you know, anyway. Yeah. So I want to finish with um, the relationship between the city and sound, mm -hmm. because that's something that you've kind of almost badged yourself with. Those two words. Yeah, accidentally. Have, yeah. How did that, <laughs> a, how did that happen? And B, how do those things connect? Um, so yeah, I've ended, I ended up then having a blog called City of Sound. Uh, I actually do now most of my writing at Medium, and the, the, the various publications that have different names based around what I then have ended up doing more. So there's one called A Chair in a Room, which is around interaction design and objects and places. And um, there's one called uh, Trojan Horses, or Dark Matter and Trojan Horses, around strategic design and so on. But still, my username is at City of Sound and Medium. I can't really shake it off, partly because my name is Dan Hill, and that name is very common, and it goes very quickly. Well, if you Google Dan Hill music, you get a you get, singer. Exactly. Yeah. You get Sometimes When We Touch in yeah. 1975, which I will, I will never be number one on Google <laughs> until I have my own hit record in Canada. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, but where that comes from was that I, when I was uh, doing State 51 stuff and this specialist record shop finder and specialist bookshop finder, I actually hatched an idea for what we would now call a startup in those days, we just called it a small business, called City of Sound, which would be a guide to the music scenes in cities all over the world. So you'd be like City of Sound slash Birmingham, City of Sound slash Lisbon and so on. And it would be the best record shops, the, the most prominent musicians, the, the best clubs, uh, probably a bit of the history of the place and so on. Knowing that there were people like me around at the time that when I was going to Barcelona or whatever, I would want to pop into the record shops mm -hmm. there. And so it was the idea of that. And I, I actually sketched out a business plan with some people at the time, um, more or less. And then it just went nowhere because I realized, actually, I'm probably going to join the BBC. <laughs> and that became a much bigger beast. So it sat in an envelope, literally, for right. a couple of years. Um, and never got taken out of that envelope, really. And um, but the name I'd registered the domain cityofsound.com, knowing at some point assuming it would have slash Lisbon slash yeah. Milan or whatever slash Sheffield. Um, so when I started blogging, I just borrowed that because it was the domain that I happened to own. And my stuff at the time was really about then. It was about cities a lot, and it was about sounds a lot, sometimes the intersection between the two, because this is maybe the more interesting bit of it, was that the way that I'd started to think about technology and the internet and cities was using music as a sound as an analog a lot, as in when you're walking through the middle of a city, you can't really perceive the internet. You certainly couldn't in you know, 1999. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was humming there. You can't really see it, so, but it's pervasive and it's yeah. there. And I was very interested in ambient music, and still am. And um, David Toop's writing, and of course Eno's stuff, and a couple of them, very good mates of mine, Paul Schutz, Simon Hopkins, and others, been making work in that area. Mm -hmm. And so this relationship between space and environment and sound was very much part of my 
thinking and world at the time. And so I would sometimes be writing about the relationship between literally music and sound, music concrete, and you know, um, uh, then the sound of cities themselves. And in the world of cities, it then became about why don't we think about sound enough? And then when I got more into architecture and design years later, um, there's this lovely book by the Finnish architect Johanny Palasma called The Eyes of the Skin, which is about um, not preferencing sight as much as the other sounds. Obviously, with architecture, the visuals mm. are very dominant. But he was writing about how you know touch and actually even taste. He was sometimes recommending going and licking a building. Uh, but certainly, the sound of things—they're absolutely fundamental yeah. to the way we experience cities. So that became a very strong, rich vein for me to write about. Well, certainly, working spaces—how they sound, what the acoustics are like—those yeah. things are really super important. Totally, and still, you know, came that came through my work much, much later. Um, but then I was also using it sort of metaphorically as a way of understanding there are these sort of invisible forces or conditions that apply in places. Um, and you could think of the internet and networks as those sort of things. You can't perceive them, but they're absolutely shaping the way that things happen. It became a sort of an interesting thread for me to unpick when I was then thinking about places and, um, or media or something. Mm. So music and sound is very useful, obviously, when it starts when you start thinking about intangible, at least in a visual sense, or ephemeral, or things that carry cultural meaning, but are not frozen in the architecture or not frozen in a text, but they're you know more living and time-based. Mm -hmm. Something that you interact with that can change in response to your interaction. Something that you, as a listener, have a very subjective relationship to. Like you might listen to Coltrane and hear something. I might listen to Coltrane and say it's totally different. So that immediately, straight away, is useful thing to think about in the context of cities. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it was on multiple levels. I was literally writing about the music scene in Manchester <laughs> or Milan. I was also thinking about music concrete and ambient music and close to that scene. Mm -hmm. I was also thinking about it metaphorically in this more looser sense. And so it did, it's, it still pervades the way that I see and think and hear the world and interact with it, I think. Mm. It's just that it's kind of, it's been shaped as a kind of a waveform over time, just in terms of how I, how much it is, how high it is in the mix comes and goes. Right. I'd like it to come back more, actually, at some point. It's just sort of, you know, for the recent years, I've been very much about uh, government, big picture challenges, cities, and so on. And yes, I've been bringing culture and subjectivity and all of those things into it. But I haven't really uh, engaged with music or sound as a practitioner at all for a long time now. And uh, while it's been when I was involved more in designing spaces and buildings, then it would be something I'd be bringing on into the picture quite often um, because I'm not a musician or a sound designer. Um, I then throw at Arab's sound team at the time who are extremely good, so they, they knew what they were doing with it. But, uh, and I'd be unusually putting them in front of people in a way that they often weren't. But um, yeah, my relationship with music now is very much just as a listener. Now I've got kids, I'm, you know, maybe I'm playing a bit more again with them, like bits of, you know, I bought my son a teenage engineering Modular, well, not modular, uh, the Rick and Morty yeah. voice synth pocket operator okay, yeah, yeah. Christmas. Yeah. We were just fooling around with it the other day. And so it's now I'm sort of vicariously living through him and my daughter as well, now beginning to sort of poke buttons and make noise, yeah. which is super nice. But I hadn't personally thought about it. I realized, oh my God, it's been quite a while since I 
Yeah. Well, interestingly, we, one of the things that we're doing in 2020 is, uh, as um, MTF is we're running labs in Mannheim uh, with the city of Mannheim, which are about um, sound in urban environments, and particularly when you've got things like autonomous vehicles that are essentially silent, yeah. um, but all IoT devices. I mean, yeah. everything in my house beeps. Yeah. You know, the washing machine finishes or the dryer starts yeah. or, you know, whatever. But we're going to have a lot more of that and thinking about how sound uh, affects that from a safety perspective or from a you know navigation perspective or those totally, sort of things. Totally. So there's the opportunity in uh, in April to sort of get involved. Oh, I'd love to. It's super interesting. I remember writing again. I was talking to Eno about this a bit because he uh, again I think it was in his swollen appendices book like a long time ago. Wrote mm-hmm. about wouldn't it be nice if car horns had a bit more character? Yeah. You know, so like a, you know if you saw a mate driving past you or in the opposite direction, you could like press the horn in a certain way and it would like tootle a kind of personal, hey, how are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to, eh. yeah. <laughs> So, and then uh, obviously then with the autonomous vehicles, or at least electric vehicles, yeah. as you say, I remember writing again when we realized that oh, that's going to be a big deal and writing about building on that idea about how this is an opportunity to actually shape the sound of the urban environment a lot. Yeah. Uh, why should an engine sound like, well, like a petrol diesel thing? Yeah. No reason at all, technically. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote a, a piece about that about 10 years ago, I guess, um, which I, I kind of republished again recently yeah. when the, um, there was a, a sense that in British law, at least, there would be a, a diktat saying that an electric vehicle needs to be able to make a noise a bit like a petrol or diesel engine. That just seems, doesn't seem right. No. That's, to me, again, it's not asking the question. Yeah, and there's a difference between noise and sound. Yeah. Too. It would be nice if they made sound. Totally. Yeah. And so, so, and now some of our work here, particularly the street stuff I referred to right at the start of our conversation, is beginning to get into the health impact of the choices we've made around mobility. Yeah. And some of that's to do with air quality, absolutely. But I think we, we've underplayed the impact of uh, the sound of cars and trucks mm. on the environment. Where I live in Stockholm, it's, um, there's a bloody great state road kind of carved right through the middle of it. It was supposed to be a garden city when it was planned in 1915 and 1958. People in the planning office thought, what this place needs is an eight-lane highway through the middle of it. Right. So that's why they dropped in. And I stood on the bridge there recently. I downloaded something for my phone, just like recording the decibel level. And it's, you know, like 75 decibels up to 80. And um, that's like, you know, living next to a washing machine constantly running all day and all night, which isn't... It's not ideal. Not ideal. Not what anybody would have wanted from a garden city. No, for sure. So, um, but it's something that's become normalized and we've just sort of, we've not done the... Hence the popularity of uh, noise-cancelling headphones. Which is weird, really. I mean, you shouldn't have to walk... Again, this goes goes back to your question about why why have cities become places that can't have the conditions of, you know, like a smaller scale, lower-density environment? Again, technically, no reason why. We've just accepted that um, cities should be noisy, dirty places because we put cars and so on through the middle of them. We don't have to have that. Certainly in the future, yeah. at all. So then they can be places where you can hear birds and coffee machines and the sound of people talking and someone practicing the violin or whatever you want to hear. You know, that, that's actually lovely. We had uh, BBC presenter LJ Rich, uh, who's from uh, BBC Click. She right. was the first guest on the MTU podcast uh, from a thing that she recorded at uh, Music Tech Fest in Stockholm 2018. Mm. Um, and one of the things that she 
talks about is because she has very pronounced synesthesia. Mm. So to her, I mean, she hears music when she tastes things. Yeah, or, right. But uh, cities are in keys. So. Right. So, Amazing. for instance, Stockholm might be in B flat. Uh, for for something, wouldn't I, I? Just thought that would be really lovely if that was literally the case. Yeah. If you you could actually go to a, a tuned city and all of the devices were completely in harmony. No, it's amazing. I mean, that again was something I I wrote a piece once about the well-tempered environment, which was you know sort of right. based around that idea. Again, using this musical analogy in the context of something completely different about the way that the environment might work in a city. But I love the idea of them having a sort of a, a, at least a sonic character or a musical character. Yeah. Clearly, I mean, that's again what I was, that's what I was interested in, even back in that BBC stuff around sketching someone walking through Manchester. Manchester has a very rich history, as does Detroit, as does many mm -hmm. other places, obviously. Um, that you would want, uh, well, you, in a way, if it could be expressed in the environment and the way that it works, it would just be fantastically powerful and interesting. Mm. What makes places different? So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm hoping that, in a funny way, I'm using the kind of the Trojan horse of electric vehicles uh, and the fact that they don't have to make exactly the same noises. They've still got car tire noise, which is another matter. But still, mm -hmm. Let's assume that some nanocellulose thing fixes car tire noise at yeah. some point. But anyway, you still have that possibility to either take the volume of cars down and therefore mix the volume of the city up accordingly, the real city, mm. people from making coffee and chatting or birds or whatever, or you have the opportunity to make some other noises there. Mm. So, you know, when you drive, if you drive your Tesla through Detroit, does it all get a bit Derek May all of a sudden? <laughs> <laughs> and then as you drive through Sheffield, it becomes a bit human league, yep. I don't know, yep. showing my age. I'd, I'd be happy with that. <laughs> oh, finally, I guess if people are working on music and technology projects and sound design and those sorts of things, what would you want them to be thinking about? Mm. I mean, for me, um, I, I mean, I love the, the world of um, teenage engineering and uh, technology will save us and those sort of, um, you know, really nice examples of Internet of Things multiplied by music tech and, you know, different devices for that stuff. And I don't, it's not that I like all of that, you know, I, I wrote a relatively scathing review of the Roly Blocks thing that came out a while ago, just because for me it didn't have the affordances of even an electric guitar or something, you know, yeah, yeah. the richness of that as a physical interaction. But still, I applaud them for basically having a crack, you know, mm -hmm. like saying, okay, what would we do given different... Making a piano out of a wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, but because that's a thing that could be explored now, then yeah. sure, you know, and so I love all of that experimentation. I'm very happy that that's happening, uh, even as a non-musician. Um, most of my interest is more about this kind of yeah, everyday sound stuff and whether it's got this kind of cultural historical layer about uh, the stories of places and the, the way that music is interwoven with the, the wider culture, whether it's Detroit or Manchester, places mm. like that, and how that could manifest itself. And then uh, uh, related to that, I suppose, yeah, this kind of understanding of sound as part of um, the environment to be designed with and around in cities. And just going again back to this Yohani Palasma point about how, if you think about, again, the way that, let's say, a new city block is portrayed when it's put in front of citizens or is even you know, thought about, to be honest, the visuals are overloading it always. It's, it's, it's ocular-centric, as in it's just, you know, it's yeah. all about the eye. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm trying instead to sort of, it's why I use these different narrative forms, like writing a short story or making a short film, 
say that you know these are cities are things that move through time with different senses triggering at different points and sound is a very profound part of that and it's something that can affect our health detrimentally or could increase conviviality in the other direction so um, I'm massively interested by sound in the urban environment still in that way I'm wanting to find ways of you know bringing it up in the mix to use a musical metaphor um, when we're talking about designing or co-creating cities and urban environments. That's, that, that to me is really interesting. And weirdly, tech, because of IoT and other stuff, gives us some, as you said with Rolly, you know, we can make a piano out of a wetsuit. Well, what, what could we do with the urban environment given the way that we can use tech now? Mm. It's a very rich, open field, but only if we bring that to the table in the right way. So that's what, that's what I find interesting. Dan, it's been absolutely fascinating. I feel like we've just skimmed the surface and there's a whole lot more to say, but uh, <laughs> as it is, I think we're looking at a two-parter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're already looking at a difficult editing job. Exactly, but uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks Pleasure. So much. No, thanks. Thanks, thanks. Simon. Really good. Thank you. Cool. That's Dan Hill, and that's the MTF Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more about the Ice Labs we're going to be running in Mannheim in April, about urban sound design in an age of AI, blockchain, and IoT devices, well, the best place to start is probably the MTF newsletter. Go to musictechfest.net slash newsletter, and we'll take it from there. If you liked the podcast, this would be a good moment to hit that star button in the Overcast player, write a quick five-star review on Apple Podcasts, click the thumbs up, heart, or other iconography with overwhelmingly positive connotations, share, like, rate, or send it to someone else that you think would like it. We'd really appreciate it. As always, you can get in touch, and we'd love to hear from you. We're at Music Tech Fest on Twitter, Music Tech Fest on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, musictechfest.net on the web. You get the idea. I'm Andrew Dubber, at Dubber on Twitter. I'll catch you next time. And in the meantime, have a great week. Cheers. Cheers.